Back on Money Talk, we're bringing you the biggest brains in the business, starting with Andrew Sullivan, founder at Asian Market Sense. Good morning. Good morning. We also welcome uh, Le Shah, a.k.a. Shark. Good morning. Good morning. He's the Asia Chief Economist at BBVA Research. Uh, gentlemen, did you take much note of uh, Janet Yellen's pronouncements over the weekend? Yes, I think uh, uh, it's quite reasonable because uh, now the regional banks in the United States, they have a problem. And then most of the banks, they will uh, be more cautious about their liquidity management, about their interest rate management. That means uh, they will prefer to put more money in their reserve rather than lending that out. So if these things uh, continue, we will see that uh, the credit growth in the economy will slow down, that could cool down the economy, and then uh, we control the inflation, and Fed don't need to hike more interest rates. But the problem is, maybe this inflation could be stubborn than this uh, credit growth, than uh, economic growth. So there's a chance that by the time we see the recession happen, but the inflation still remain there. So that's why we think uh, that's uh, maybe to some degree, uh, this uh, is good news for money pol uh, monetary policy makers, but they shouldn't be too complacent, okay? Yeah, but I mean, so the U.S. Fed, uh, you know, they, on one hand, they're raising interest rates. And the other one, they open up this this discount window where they're, you know, lending money for stability purposes. Uh, and the banks have taken some of the banks have taken up that money. But you're saying they are in Janet Yellen saying they've taken the money, but they're not going to lend it out. They're just going to hold on to it just for say just for the appearance of safety, security. So people are comfortable with deposits. Is that the plan? Yeah, I think that you make very good point. There's another possibility that this one could encourage we call this a moral hazard problem. So that means if my depositors are well protected, I can take more risk lending rather than give the money. Yeah. There's a one possibility that, the, but but overall, I still think uh, uh, from the perspective of this liquidity management, at least for short time, the banks should be very cautious. They must uh, learn the things right, and then they make the next decision. So I don't worry about this uh, kind of things uh, will be a big problem to stimulate the, the, the lending. Yeah, Andrew, are you are you aligned with that thinking? Well, I think the thing is, I mean, the, the, the lending that the Fed is doing is against you know its own bonds, and that's because you know a lot of the banks have got a mismatch between the timing of the deposits that they've taken and the uh, securities that they've invested in against them. So that's what the Fed's trying to do with that new window. But I think, uh, I mean, it's it's well known. Yes, if the, if the if the banks lend less, that that helps the Fed. But I mean, we're not really seeing American businesses uh, talking about large capex either. So there's there's a slowdown there, and there's a slowdown in the certainly in the sort of commercial real estate area of offices, which again is going to put pressure put pressure on some of these banks who are big lenders to that sector. And I think we saw that in the Wells Fargo results uh, on Friday. So, you know. As, as Jacques saying, I mean, the inflation is the worry for the Fed. You know, how it slows that down, whether it, it's raising interest rates or whether it's the banks being more cautious on lending doesn't really matter. The, the, the reality is it's still got to try and bring that under control. And, you know, you talk about the mismatch between uh, between the, the securities they're holding and the, and, and the bonds. How long is it going to take for that to work itself out? Well, some of them have got, you know, they bought T10s looking for yield and those have to run for 10 years. But the Fed facility is only at the moment for 12 months. It's just trying to give them that element of stability. 
it, it's, it's a part of the way they, they value these things and have to mark them to market or not mark them to market. If they say they're going to hold them for duration, then they don't have to mark them to market. But if we come back, you know, and I guess it's a little bit less than 12 months now since the, the Fed opened this program. If we come back and they haven't, uh, you know, if they still have such, if they still have a huge mismatch, that is that going to cause another crisis of confidence? And is the Fed just going to have to roll it over? Or what, what do you, do you have any anticipation on that front? I don't think people are thinking that far ahead at the moment. But I mean, the reality is, True. the reality is that the Fed will probably have to continue rolling it. Um, that's just the nature of the game. Okay. Um, Shrek, you made reference to the bank, uh, to the bank results coming in. What, what are you, how are you guys feeling about some of these bank results uh, that we're hearing? They're, uh, they're looking pretty good on a quarterly basis. Uh, what, what is your take on that? Yeah, I think, for, frankly, last year, most of the banks in the United States and Europe, they benefit from these interest hikes because uh, while you have a relatively higher interest rate level, you can charge more for your clients. That's why I think not only for the United States, but also for uh, European banks, uh, last year they have very good result. And early this year, you reported the, the JP Morgan because there are big banks in the United States that they even benefit from this uh, financial turmoil. The smaller banks, uh, the depositor in Salomo banks, uh, they worry about situation and then they shift their deposit to these big banks. And these big banks, they can charge more. That's a very interesting uh, phenomenon. Uh, but I think that, of course, if you have a good profitability for these banks, uh, that's helped to stabilize people's uh, confidence in this uh, banking sector. Mm -hmm. But I always said, uh, be careful, because uh, after this uh, financial turmoil in the first quarter, this kind of uh, uh, pandemic fear already sold the seed in people's minds. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we, we need to watch this one. I think the other thing you've got to bear in mind is that this this stage, a lot of these banks... As, as Chuck's saying, they're, they're taking advantage of the higher interest rates, but they're not giving that out to their depositors. They're actually just banking that, that themselves and putting it onto their profit lines. Um, and, and that's going to be a concern because people are going to start wanting more money, which is why we saw a lot of money going into the, into the money markets and, and that sort of thing, rather than just sitting at the banks. Yep. So, I mean, so the, the banks have really got to pick and choose. I mean, like the JP Morgan thing, they're making a lot more money on interest. Losing their securities took a big hit on the securities front. Um, and like you said, got to watch and see if people are moving money out of the, uh, out, of, out of the banks into the money markets. Um, switching gears a little bit, looking a little closer to home, uh, property market in China, we had some new data out, uh, looking at home prices coming in. Uh, Shark, do you want to give us a take on, on where do you think things are going? Has China turned a corner on the property market? Uh, I think we have seen some good signals on this respect. So last year and the two years ago, the Chinese uh, property market, they, they suffer a lot. Okay. And then the home sales, they, uh, I remember the home sales, they reduced by 30% last year. But this year things are start to stabilize. I, that's, I think that's a good news. But I noticed that although the market has become better, uh, the problem is, uh, it depends. I think the, uh, the the state-owned property, uh, property developers uh, they benefit a lot from this uh, recent uh, pickup in the property market, but unfortunately, many private uh, developers and many of them already listed in. Hong Kong's market, they still suffer because I think they are still undergo some process of uh, debt restructuring. Uh, I think maybe uh, overall the market has become better, but uh, some private developers, they still have a big problems now. Mm. 
Yeah, I think I think the thing is, I mean, in the in the tier one and tier two cities, we haven't seen any problems at all. But in the lower tier cities, I think there's still a lot of uh, a lot of bad laundry there yet to come out. And and I think you know a lot of it's confidence. I mean, you're seeing people are now preferring to buy the secondary market because they know they're going to get their unit. There's still problems in the primary market because people are unsure whether the developer's got the cash to finish the development. Hmm. So that confidence has still got to be rebuilt, and that's going to take some time. And I mean, you know, we, we talk a lot about the, the Chinese housing market, and then separately we talk about, you know, China's connection to the rest of the world, and in particular its exports. How much are those two things actually connected to each other? Do people have more confidence in the Chinese property market when they see exports ticking up because they think that will filter back into jobs and consumer confidence, or are those two, are those two things largely unconnected? I think that definitely if you see some good signals on these uh, export sectors on other uh, sectors of the economy, people maybe have more confidence uh, on the property market because uh, overall, I think that one of the important problems for Chinese property market is uh, in the past, the China implemented very restrictive <laughs> uh, restrictions on, on mm. this, uh, uh, about this uh, pandemic. So now when Chinese uh, reopen this economy, everything's become better and all these things, t- t- they tend to reinforce with each other. But I think uh, for property market, uh, first, w- first of all, the China authorities should show that uh, they committed to save many of these uh, uh, property developers to, to, to eliminate this kind of unfinished project problem right. in, in China. And secondly, they need to make sure these uh, people have more income, people have their jobs, so they can afford to buy uh, new homes. Yeah, I mean, your, your point about the Chinese government selectively putting pressure on developers to finish the houses they have committed to that people have put money down for. I guess that's pretty important. Um, but is that is that showing up as like, yes, uh, more projects are being completed and, and taken out of uh, development hell, to use a Hollywood term. Um, but does that mean that other new projects, like groundbreaking on other projects, has, has really slowed down? Yes. I mean, I think we've still got to see the local authorities re- refinance their own debt. And that's going to be another important thing. You know, historically, they've relied on land sales. So if these smaller developers can't, don't have the cash to finish projects, they certainly don't have the cash to be able to reinvest into new land. Uh, and so that's where they've got to come in and support, make sure that the, the projects are finished. Um, then, then the developers should have enough cash to start the game again. Hmm. Um, guys, uh, Shark, I, I earlier I made reference to uh, the export markets. And I know you've written a paper recently on decoupling, and you've got a few things you want to share on that. What, what, uh, what's your take on the, the continued decoupling in, uh, of China from, from, say, Western markets? Uh, yes, I think we call it the industry relocation uh, rather than decoupling. Uh, I think uh, oh, is, this, that, uh, is that is decoupling passe now? We don't say that anymore. Uh, yeah, I, I think this uh, decoupling things sounds too scary for me. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This uh, relocation things already happening. So uh, if you look at uh, the Chinese uh, export to the United States and uh, Europe, we have seen they have done quite a lot. So that means uh, the Chinese uh, manufacturing, they're moving their capacities to other countries. And in the recent paper I wrote, I specially focus on which countries can benefit from them one. Mm-hmm. Uh, our conclusion is that uh, Southeast plus Indian, they are likely to benefit from more than other emerging markets because uh, they are on the same supply chain. And now they are already uh, competitors in some small sectors with China. So I'm... Um, through both ways, they can take 
couple of more share along the supply chain, they can export more as a competitor to China through both ways. They can benefit most from this kind of the industry relocation. Yeah, I, th- I think the economist uh, <clears throat> took a half-hearted stab at popularizing a term, alt-China. They had a collection of 14 countries they were looking at uh, as alternatives to China. Um, Andrew, are you, are you helping your clients to try and find opportunities in, in alt-China countries? Yes, I think, I mean, there's a lot of manufacturing that is going to move. And if not moving, then new manufacturing is going to be outside of China because of the, the COVID lockdowns and the policy changes that we've seen there. Um, and certainly, as, as, as Shark says, you know, there, a lot of these countries already have that. I think the major one is probably going to be India. And the fact that, you know, Apple's going there with, with Hon Hai just shows you that, that the scope for the expansion is huge. Mm, okay. I mean, uh, the Han Hai Apple thing has been, has been talked about a lot and, and Apple moving to production in China. Are there other sectors that are maybe not as obvious to people uh, that they should be looking at as potential investment targets to benefit from this phenomenon? Well, I think you can look at the whole of the structure. I mean, one of the other big themes that's coming out from all of this and even from, from the, uh, the chat GBT is, the, is the, the power requirement for all of these things in Asia. Mm. So a lot of the, you know, the power manufacturing companies, the people that make the transformers, the people that make the grid lines, uh, that is also, that's going to be a long-term play in, in this field. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shark, do you have some other, like I said, do you have, like, whether it's, I don't know, is it like, you know, companies, listed companies maybe that have textiles in, in Vietnam or textiles in Bangladesh or, or some, other, some other sectors that maybe are, are moving out of China where there might be some opportunities? I think that for this textile industry, definitely it's already happened. If you go to the shop, you find less product produced in China than in other emerging markets. I like to say this kind of industry relocation, uh, they, they, they do depends on different industries. For this high-tech industry, because the United States, they impose a lot of restrictions, embargoes on China. That's why in this part, like Honghai, Apple, they move faster than other industries. Mm. But for other industries, definitely we see these chemicals, uh, we see this uh, uh, textile, uh, labor-intensive one. They mm. are moving to other uh, countries as well. Any, yeah. any chance that those companies could get financing from the Hong Kong Stock Exchange to uh, try to raise money here, even, even though they are moving, you know, even though they're moving manufacturing out of China? I think the Hong Kong Exchange, they, they welcome these ideas. <laughs> of course, I think that they can, uh, through this uh, go-listing process, to find finance here in Hong Kong, definitely. But uh, it depends because uh, everyone's looking to these opportunities. Uh, they compete with each other. Uh, yeah. yeah. There's, already, there's already quite a number of listed companies here that have manufacturing outside of that. You know, look at Tektronix, they've got plants in Vietnam already. You know, a lot of these companies have already moved things out two or three years ago. Hmm. Uh, we've got about 45 seconds left. The Hong Kong Stock Exchange has also said they're going to increase disclosure requirements for ESG. Uh, could that maybe deter some people or is that uh, going to be a problem? I don't think there's any fixed standard on ESG, which makes it very, very difficult for companies and investors alike. Um, until there's a global standard that's reasonable, then it's just going to be one more hassle and one more cost for companies, unfortunately. Okay, which could maybe make it a little bit uh, less attractive depending on what's happening in other markets. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you very much to our guest today. Uh, a couple of uh, Andrew Sullivan, a longtime contributor. He's the founder at Asian Market Sense. And uh, Le Chat, a.k.a. Shark, is uh, becoming, becoming a regular, uh, which is great news. Uh, he's the Asia Chief Economist at BBVA Research.